Okay, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to look again at the story of Elijah. So it's 1 Kings 18 from verse 16. We read, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw him, he said, Is that you, you trouble of, of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they'd made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, 
Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink. For there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah cried to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the man reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Let's just come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that that you give us everything we need in our lives. You give us everything that we need physically. You provide for every need of our hearts and our lives. And Lord, you provide for us spiritually in your word. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be appreciative. And tonight... Help us to take hold of all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here tonight in this fifth look at Isaiah, we're focusing very much here on the climax of Elijah's ministry. And what I want us to do, it is Elijah, by the way, just a wee slip there. And what I want us to do as we look at his story is without ignoring the excitement, the the dramatic, the miraculous, the part and parcel of this, What I want to do is focus on the teaching we find here about what the different key elements were that together at this key time combined to make up Elijah's ministry. And from this, I believe we'll gain insights as to what some of the elements are that should also be found in our ministry, in our service for the Lord. And the first element I want us to look at uh, to begin with being the challenge of his ministry. And we really find the nucleus of this challenge in his question of the people of Israel in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, now some translations actually translate the same verse a little bit differently. That is, how long will you go 
limping with two different opinions. And that word in one instance is translated waver, and the other limping, it actually has as its original background the idea of kind of hopping about lamely from one foot to the other. And it's been suggested that as Elijah uses this word as part of his challenge to the people here, that he's employing a touch of sarcasm. Because you see, a hopping kind of dance was actually part of the worship of that false god, Baal, the god of fertility and materialism, who so many of the people of Israel had turned to. So there's maybe a, a touch of ridicule here. And certainly sarcasm does become really a marked feature of Elijah's approach later on in this incident, particularly his attitude towards these false prophets of the false god Baal. But what is undoubtedly clear here is the point that Elijah is seeking to get across. And that is that God's people have to make a choice. They have to choose between God and obedience to his ways or this world with its so often flashy false gods and seemingly appealing false ways. Things that seem on the surface to promise so much but that end up delivering so very little. Because you see, as we've been uncovering, as we've looked at Elijah's story over recent weeks, what Israel had been trying to do was trying to, to live out a compromise. They'd been trying half-heartedly to hold on to their faith in the one true God, but while at the same time incorporating worship of false gods, of Baal and Asherah, into their life of faith. Because, you see, they, they felt that there were blessings and, and benefits to be gained from both, and they literally, they wanted to have the best of both worlds. But that, they found out, and this is what Elijah's seeking to underline to them, that is an impossibility. It's an impossibility because of the nature of God. It's an impossibility because of our nature as people and because of the nature of the relationship that we have with him. Because, you see, he is the Lord. He's the one whose nature demands, because of who he is, that he be worshipped and obeyed. And we are his people, made by him for a relationship with him. And the cornerstone of that relationship is obedience to our Lord. That's the relationship that we're intended to have with God. And it's in that relationship alone that we can ever find true fulfillment. One where we live to please him and we, where we find joy in doing so. But you see, as soon as we start giving God half-hearted obedience, then the whole basis of that relationship with him is damaged, is broken. And our joy goes, our peace goes, our sense of God's pleasure goes from our lives. Everything else that is good goes along with it. However, impossibility is, an, sorry, compromise is an impossibility, not just because of the nature of God and because of our nature as his people. No, it's actually also an impossibility because of the nature of this world and particularly because of the nature of the evil one who rules over it. Because although this world and its master, although they talk the language of compromise, 
Yet the actual reality is in fact very different. You see, the devil says, just give away a little bit. Just cut a few corners. Just tone things down a little bit. And it won't make any difference. You know, don't be a fanatic about your faith because that's off-putting to others and it makes life unnecessarily uncomfortable for you. But of course, all of this is a lie. Because being truly faithful doesn't mean being a fanatic. Never. Because if your heart is right, if you're in touch with God and with God's love, then you're never going to drift into fanaticism. And of course, the reality here is that when the devil says, give an inch, he really does take a mile. For you give way, maybe, just a little bit. You kind of tone things down that little bit. And you think that you're master, that you're in charge of your compromise. But too often, it's not long before that compromise has mastered you. It's not long before the devil, not the Lord, is effectively sitting on the throne of your life in charge, in control. Because, you see, that's what both God and the devil ultimately want. They both want to be Lord, to be in control of our lives. But God, you see, God states that honestly. And he wants to exercise his lordship for our good. The devil, though, subtly disguises in true intentions, but he too, he wants mastery over our lives. He wants to control us, not though for our benefit, but for our destruction. Now, Elijah knows the issues that are at stake here. He knows how dangerous compromise is. That at the very least, this will lead to us being unusable in the service of a holy God, that's the very least. And so because of this, clear-cut challenge is here a central part of his ministry. There's no beating about the bush, no flannel. Again there, verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. I want to say to you, I believe we have to have this same element of clear-cut challenge at the heart of our ministry, our service, our message, our living. In the midst of all of our, our loving and all of our caring, all of our forgiving and understanding, there has to come a time when we set out the absolute challenge of Christian faith. So when we're seeking to bring people to Christ, when we're seeking to bring them to faith, then there needs to come a time when as well as sharing with them God's love for them, which we must, there comes a time when we also need to talk about other things, things like sin, like the need for repentance, and that if we're going to follow Jesus, the demands of total loyalty and obedience he makes upon the lives of those who follow him, we need to share this kind of challenge. And we need to share it clearly because if we don't, we're not sharing the full gospel. And we also need to share the absolute challenge and demands of Christian faith when we see someone beginning to compromise, beginning to to backslide, if you like, in their faith. 
We need to let them know how this dishonors God, how it grieves them, and what it means for them spiritually, and how it affects their witness and their impact on all who come into contact with them. We have to bring this challenge in the midst of all our love and all our care, alongside love and care. In fact, you know, without this challenge, love and care are meaningless. Indeed, I would say to you that challenge of this kind, properly given, is a true, true expression of love and care. Because by this, our aim is to bring our brothers and sisters in Christ back into right relationship with their God. Back to pleasing him and knowing his blessing as a result of that. Too often, though, we, we tend to miss out on, on this challenge. We think we're too nice and we want to be nice as this world understands nice. And usually that's what makes us popular. And we end up by being nice, but in a weak way. And the cutting edge of Christian faith is blunted. Elijah had a challenge about his faith, about his message, about his ministry. And we too in the church today need that challenge about ours as well. We need to rediscover that love and challenge are not in some way incompatible, but rather they belong together. And we need to learn how to issue a challenge in love. The next element of Elijah's ministry that we're going to look at is the character of his ministry. And this, I believe, is revealed in, in its richness in Elijah's encounter with the priests of Baal, that, that false God. And of course, there's a very real element of the dramatic and the miraculous about this encounter. We see the dramatic in, in the whole way Elijah sets this event up. The way that he puts these false priests on the spot in public so there's no way they can back out from this challenge. And then standing back and letting them do their utmost, even in fact urging them on with taunts and with ridicule. Then there's this rebuilding of the the altar of the Lord with those 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel dramatically symbolizing What's going to be from this moment the spiritual rebirth and rebuilding of the nations? And then moving on to, to drench his sacrifice with water, so making what had seemed, what had proved an impossible task for the God of his adversaries much more difficult for him and for his God. And finally, is the actual miracle itself. As in answer to Elijah's prayer, the Lord sends fire from heaven and the whole thing, the whole event just reeks of drama, excitement and tension. But, you know, without in any way dishonoring the dramatic and miraculous, I actually believe there's something else going on here. Something more fundamental and meaningful which is of greater relevance for us today. And, and this is, I think, hinted at in verse 37 where before the miraculous fire, prior to this, Elijah prays, Answer me, O God, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back. Do you get that? You are turning their hearts back again. You see, prior to the visible fire, 
And prior to that visible demonstration of the power of God, God had already been at work in power in the hearts of his people by that invisible fire of the Holy Spirit. Their hearts had been moved. They'd been spiritually prepared by God. So when the physical fire comes, well, the real work is actually in their hearts already been done. Now, it seems to me that this idea of an underlying strength, an underlying power, that this really does, for me, sum up and illustrate the difference, the fundamental difference between Elijah's ministry and that of these false prophets. For you see, their ministry was all about emotion and ecstasy. It was all about show, putting on a show. You've got it all there, frenzied dance, loud chants, slashing of the body, everything that's designed to catch the eye and superficially stir up the emotions. But then when you look at Elijah's ministry and at the character of his ministry, well, I think you see at the heart of it something of a different quality altogether. Because while we said Elijah's not afraid to use the dramatic and, and the eye-catching, he's ready to use methods that are appropriate to the people and to the time and the need that they have. But there's actually an awful lot more to Elijah's ministry than this. There is an underlying core within his ministry of quiet strength and trust and faith in God that underlies and affects everything Elijah does, even the dramatic, even the miraculous, and that makes his life and his ministry fundamentally different from that of his opponents here. <clears throat> you see that as Elijah issued his challenge and, and brought God's people to the point of repentance. They didn't make the mistake of placing his trust in the kind of methods and emotional manipulation that was symbolized here by the actions of these false priests of the false God. He did use these methods that were appropriate, but he didn't allow this world's methods to use him or to master him or to overshadow what he was actually about. Rather, throughout this, throughout everything that happens here, he still keeps his trust firmly, completely, and calmly in the Lord. And it was this, this underlying core that lay at his heart that really, I believe, sums up the character of Elijah's ministry that illustrates the difference between his ministry and the false priests of a false God. But what I want to ask you now is, is this the, the dominant characteristic of ministry and service that we see in the church of today. Is that the fundamental characteristic of what God's people are about today? A deep trust in God. Too often I fear this has been replaced either sometimes by frenzied effort or other times by blind trust in this world techniques and trying to put on a show that's going to be impressive by this world's standards or simply by giving up. We've given up. The church just limps along. And what so often this means is that we might put in a lot of effort. We might make a, a lot of noise and put on a good show. We might put on a pretty terrible show. But spiritually, so often, so little, if anything, is achieved. 
And that's the way things will continue to be. Until we learn with Elijah what the heart characteristic of true ministry and true Christian living is all about. That at its heart, that at its core, at the heart and core of who we are, that it has to be all about trust in God. It has to be about living in dependence on God. It has to be about looking to God in every situation and circumstance until we learn with Elijah that spiritual power that achieves true spiritual miracles only comes from the Lord. And we need to learn that and then turn again to him empty-handed and open-hearted to receive from him. Until we get this right, we're not going to know again the real blessing of God. Well, the final element of Elijah's ministry I want to focus on is the, the concern of his ministry. The concern for both the, the spiritual and for the physical long-term well-being of his people. Now, his long-term spiritual concern, I believe, we, we see revealed here in verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Keshon Valley and slaughtered there. Now, some of you may be wondering what I was going to make of that verse, <coughs> if I was maybe going to try and ignore it. Not too many, I suspect, thought that I would try and use it as an example of Elijah's long-term spiritual concern. But, you know, I believe it is. I believe it is. Because Elijah was a man of his time. And God worked in Elijah according to that, according to his setting in history. And you see, God had placed a principle into Elijah's heart and mind. That he, his God, was pure and holy. And that Elijah and his people should also be pure and holy. And so here, Elijah did what any man of his time and culture would do in order to ensure that. And you have to admit, though his actions were drastic, they certainly were effective. But you know, there's an important lesson, I believe, for us to learn here. Because you see, Elijah knew that if his people were going to survive long-term spiritually, if their repentance was going to be long-lasting and they were really going to go on with the Lord and grow and develop in their relationship with him, then the root of sin, the source of sin, anything that could possibly lead them back into sin had to be rooted out, removed from their lives. And that same basic spiritual principle still holds true, I believe, for us today. And our approach to the kind of spiritual surgery that might need to be done in order to achieve this has to be as drastic, I think, though hopefully not as violent, as that which Elijah here instigated. And whenever you see anyone is unwilling to submit to this, whenever anyone is unwilling to root out of their lives sin and anything that could lead them into sin, Whenever that's true, well, then I'm sorry, but despite maybe their claims to the contrary, that person is not truly serious 
about the spiritual life. It's not serious about sin. It's not truly, I believe, repentant. Well, they might be sorry about sin. They might be sorry about what it's doing to them. They might even be sorry for what it's doing to God. They might be sorry, but they haven't repented. They haven't turned from their sin to God because their attitude to sin, their refusal to root sin out of their lives, to stand away back as far from sin as they can, I believe that gives the game away. And you know, we we need to face people with this. We need to challenge people with this. Too often, I think, we we let people off with at best a half-hearted repentance. And we say this, that we do this, because we're too kind and we're too loving. We're too soft-hearted to risk offending anyone by bringing a challenge like this to them. The truth is, the truth is, that the most unloving thing we can possibly do is to let someone continue in sin. That's unloving. To let someone continue to wander from God, that is unloving. I think too often what motivates us here is actually self-love and self-preservation rather than love for the other person. We're worried for ourselves rather than them, worried they might not like us, worried we might become unpopular. That's what's motivating us. It's short-term self-love, self-concern, rather than what should be motivating us, long-term spiritual concern for brothers and sisters in Christ. But as well as long-term spiritual concern, I think we also find long-term physical concern as part of Elijah's ministry. Seen here in his fervent prayer that as God's people have repented, that now rain might fall upon the land. Because Elijah knows that, that this repentant, but still here, famine ravaged people, he knows that they must have rain if they are to survive. And I think you know, it's so important that, that we have the same kind of depth and breadth to our ministry. Because it's not enough to see people one to the Lord or, or spiritually restored back again, that's not enough. If we're truly going to be faithful servants of God, then I believe we need to be concerned about every aspect of their life. Not just the, the kind of spiritual side of it. Too often in the past, I think we've seen people as sort of spiritual tenpins that we think that once we've got them knocked over, once we've got them into the kingdom, that's it, job done, we can turn our back. But then too often, a little bit later, we hear about these same people drifting away or or backsliding again. And and we wonder why. Why is this happening? Why is this continuing? I think too often it's because we have forgotten or we have neglected the other needs of their life. The problems, simple and practical things often, that they're facing in life, physical, material and emotional things. We've neglected them. But the devil doesn't forget. He doesn't. And so often he uses, he works away in those areas that are ignored by us to lure people away again from their loyalty to the Lord. So we do, we do have to show a real breadth of concern, I believe, in our ministry. 
Concern for the, the spiritual is a priority, yes, but also concern for the physical, material, the emotional well-being of those we're reaching out to and of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we are going to be like Elijah, true servants of God, to the people of God, then our ministry to men and women doesn't stop when they're converted. It doesn't restrict itself to one area. No, conversion brings us on to the next stage in ministry where we seek to minister to whatever their need is in life. So three elements then, I believe, that were found in Elijah's ministry. It's challenge, it's character, and it's concern. Three elements that I pray will be found in our ministry individually, in our lives, and also in the ministry of this church. As we share the same kind of challenge as Elijah, as we show his kind of character in our ministry, and as we serve with his kind of bread of concern for men and women. I believe these things should be, must be part of our life and ministry. Because it wasn't just Elijah that served like this. Look at the New Testament. So too did Jesus. And so then, must we also. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for that ministry of Elijah, for the things that that marked out his life and his ministry to your people in your name, that he was ready to challenge. He didn't avoid stating that sin is sin and that it needs to be dealt with if we're to be back in relationship with you. He faced your people with that. Father, we thank you that we see in his ministry that, that root character, that although he used different things and although that you worked through him in miracles, yet it was so clear that right at the heart of who he was and what he was about was a trust in you. He didn't get carried away by the miracles, but rather he used those miracles to point to you and to our need to trust in you, our God. And I'll be thank you also for his concern, his concern before all else that people be right with you in their heart and spirit, but also his concern for the whole person, for the physical needs the emotional needs, and whatever other needs we have in our life. Lord, help us to show that same concern to those who we interact with day by day, our family, our friends, our colleagues, or whatever. Help us to show that we care for them, that we love them as people. And we pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.